Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. GAO captures the data of what's filed with it. Uh, the Court of Claims has started. Well, it always captured the data, but it didn't organize it so that other people could look at it. And there was almost no data on agency-level bid protests. Several years ago now, Congress had passed a statute requiring loser pays. What that meant was if you filed a bid protest and you lost, you would then reimburse the government for the costs associated with uh, defending that protest. And in the process of implementing that requirement, DOD began to create the data elements and uh, a data collection method for uh, for protests so they could keep track of it. Because at the end of, I think it was a year or two years, uh, DOD had to make a report back to Congress and tell them how many protests they had, who won, who lost, and how much money they uh, collected. DOD did not implement that requirement as quickly as they might otherwise have in hopes that Congress would uh, revoke uh, their previous direction. And two years later, lo and behold, Congress did. So what we found is they began to establish the elements and uh, a location for capturing the data on protests, but they never, they never executed. So if you went to DOD today and asked them to talk to you about uh, data associated with protests, how long they took, how much it cost, whether a, a protester actually won, and then what what winning means which is a big deal because uh, there's a lot of discussion about what winning a protest means. But you can't get that data right now. It doesn't, what we found was it just doesn't exist. Uh, again, they started building the structure for capturing it. They didn't start capturing it. And that's true for agency level bid protests, just as it's true for GAO or court of claims protests. Right now, if you talk to GAO, they consider uh, winning, in quotes, uh, when uh, the government either uh, awards a contract to the protester uh, or gets corrective action resulting from the protest. And then when you ask them, well, how many protesters actually wind up Getting the contract they filed a protest on, uh, the number is, I don't know, 6 10%. It's not the 40-some-odd percent they, they quote as winning because they count the corrective action as winning. If you're a protester and you're trying to figure out uh, whether it's worth your investment in your money to file a protest, I think it's pretty important to know what the likelihood is that you'll actually get a contract. You may spend a lot of money uh, and you may wind up getting a decision that the government didn't follow all of its rules, but you may not get the contract. And I think it's pretty important to understand 
what it means to file a protest and win. And that's true for whether it's agency level, GAO level, or the court of claims level. And so when we looked at the whole process, we also talked to the procurement executives within the department. And uh, it's, I think it's important to know that all of them thought that having a bid protest process was really important. And they liked the idea of an agency level bid protest process because it looked less expensive and faster in terms of allowing the purchase to proceed that's the subject of a protest. But they too didn't have the data on what was really going on with protests at any level. I mean, they get a report about how many JO cases they, there were. They might get that report you know, once a year. Uh, GAO publishes its statistics at in the beginning of the new fiscal year normally, but they don't have the complete view of the protest system from the court of claims down to the agency level bid protest process. They also don't have the current data provided to them to allow them to identify problems in the procurement process, which are manifesting themselves in contractors who are unhappy with how the government is managing the, the acquisition process. And they pay a lot of money for the protest process in terms of what comes out of salaries and budget and time to take delivering products and services to their customers internally. But what they don't have is right now available to them at their fingertips on their computers, the ability to see trends where there may be a problem with the notice part of the procurement process. Did they, did they identify the requirement correctly? Did they have uh, pr uh, good performance measures, both for evaluating offers before they make the award and post-award for measuring whether they actually got what the government paid for? And so another thing that we noticed and commented on in our report was the fact that the protest process is important to manage the the procurement process but we don't take advantage of access to the data which allows us to understand whether there's a place in our process that needs our immediate attention whether it's training whether one of our rules is defective and needs to be rewritten we don't have that ability to do that from our desktops the only time you your attention really gets drawn there is when there's a big case that makes the news or congress gets upset and starts uh, summoning you or someone your or your boss to the hill to explain why something happened and so instead of being able to manage on a proactive basis using the data, which by the way, they already collect. They just don't put it in a place where they can use it. They just don't have a way to proactively manage when there are trends in problems that manifest themselves in the protest process. Let's just talk about some of the uh, recommendations you all made. You know, you made, I think, uh, eight total about what could do to what could be done 
Uh, maybe just highlight a couple of them that you think uh, are, could have some more immediate effect and then what, what's more long-term. What's most likely to advance based on the feedback we got is our recommendations regarding agency level bid protests. Ironically, ironically, Jason, you go back to 94 and what the, the Clinton executive order, that was based on great experience at the Army Material Command. AMC is still the best agency level bid protest system. If we took the best practices from AMC regarding agency level bid protests and best practices from other agencies across the government that we, we compiled in this report and the administrative conference report, the best practices from across the government could make agency level bid protests much more effective. And they're a pathway forward then for really dealing with bid protests, not as a catastrophe, but as a management tool. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, 
I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. 
and it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? 
So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.